And I want to invite you to open to the Gospel of John, chapter 20, as we will continue in our verse-by-verse study of this glorious Gospel. I'll read verses 1 through 10, and then we will look at this in detail together this morning. John 20, verse 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they've laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth with which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their homes. It's been well said that the most valuable news ever heard came from a graveyard. The greatest words ever spoken in all of Israel were, He is not here, for He is risen as He said. Which an angel declared. We enter into what is the very essence of Christianity this morning, beloved. The almost empty tomb. Empty of the body of Jesus Christ, but not empty of evidence. This almost empty tomb is the glory of Christianity. The almost empty tomb is the capstone of the Christian faith. Christianity would be reduced to just one more religion in the marketplace of spiritual experientialism had not Jesus raised up from the dead. But that's not the case. For because of this almost empty tomb, his resurrection destroys, annihilates every other belief system that is derived by man. From the 12-step God, to Mormonism, to Jehovah's Witnesses, to Muslims, it destroys them all. In chapter 20 of John's Gospel, this here is the climax of his book. Which, as you recall, opens with what words, beloved? In the beginning... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John deliberately opens with those words to remind us of the opening of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was an original beginning, there was an original creation, and the fall of man. Falling to sin brought about havoc to the original created order. And with the coming of Jesus Christ, the very word of God becoming flesh was, is the inauguration or a launching, if you will, of a new beginning. Scripture begins with the original creation the creation of this universe, and ends in the last chapters with the creation of a new universe. And in between those two great works, the original creation, the original beginning, and here the new beginning, we see God's unfolding plan of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. 
And his resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ coming up out of the grave is the central announcement that the new creation has commenced. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a bodily resurrection. And it's central to all of Christianity. A certification that we too, beloved, shall be raised from the dead physically, even as our Lord was. Do you believe that this morning? Do you hope in that this morning? Do you know that this will come to pass? Every one of us in this room will be raised physically from the grave one day, either into perfect, harmonious union with Jesus Christ, or resurrected with a body fit for eternal torment. There's no in-between body. No middle road. So this here is a constant reminder for us that what he accomplished for us in his life and in his death is valid. It validates Christianity. As I said, it is the capstone of the faith. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, God, the Bible says, would be a liar. And I say that with reverence. That's the scripture. You could throw your Bible away. It would mean nothing had not the Lord Jesus Christ raised up from this grave. Granting us the forgiveness of our sins. And also, beloved, granting us His very righteousness. Meaning that in Christ, by way of His death, you are not merely forgiven of your sins, but you are actually made righteous. Do you understand that this morning? You're not merely forgiven of your sins if you are in Christ. Yes, they are removed, expiated, but also made righteous, actually given, granted to you, placed upon your account the very righteousness of the Son of God. That's righteousness by imputation. And that's what His work accomplished on your behalf. Do you understand that? Amen. Hallelujah, brother. Amen. Whoever you are. Literally made righteous because of Christ. Declared free from all blame. As far as the east is from the west, so are your sins removed from you. Made righteous. He is our penalty payer, beloved. Completely removing the debt that sinners owe to God. God is holy. If you're not in Christ this morning, you owe him a debt. You owe him a debt. You must live a sinless, flawless life. That's your debt. You can't do that. If you die without Christ as Lord of your life, you will suffer the consequence of eternal hell. That's what the Bible says. So in Christ, the kingdom of heaven has come. The kingdom of heaven has come in Christ and is still coming, beloved. And is still coming. The full manifestation of which will be consummated at his glorious bodily return. This is our hope. A resurrected body along with a cosmic future, meaning there will be a resurrected universe. We live in a cursed world, beloved. God's going to raise us up and he's going to renew the universe. He's going to resurrect it because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And one day, he will have standing before him a fully resurrected, fully redeemed bride. His church. United with Christ in a new heavens and a new earth. So the hope of this yet future resurrection takes us back to the grave of our Savior. Last week you were with us, if you were with us, we left off with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus laying Christ in a rich man's tomb. Wrapped in linens. And within the folds of those linens were myrrh and aloes, spices. An anointed body to be placed in the grave. So his victory over sin and death 
is declared through his resurrection. And he, by the way, is the prototype, so to speak, of our bodily resurrection. The future resurrection that we look forward to. He is the prototype. Now, as you know, John the Apostle here is writing under divine inspiration. When he wrote this gospel, he writes it with perfect recollection, and he wrote this some 40 or 50 years after the resurrection of our Lord. And we cannot read these accounts, we must not read these accounts without hearing the intensity of his words with regard to that which he saw, that which these apostles witnessed, and how true faith began to flood the soul of John, as we'll see this morning. I mean, true belief, as he stood there in the tomb from which his Savior rose. We read this, or we should, as though it happened yesterday. Because in the mind of John, some 40 or 50 years later, you're reading it, he's describing it as it happened to him yesterday. So our focus is John's account of the resurrection. Although all all four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, cover this event, each account is different in detail. The substance is the same. But it will be no different than the four, four of us from this group standing on all four corners of Afton and Arrow Drive and witnessing a car driving from the east at a high rate of speed, running a red light, and hitting the front right side of a car, coming into that intersection to turn west, and creaming it. The four of us would see the same accident, but we give four differing accounts of the same fact, of the same reality. If I'm standing on the south East corner, I would say the car drove from at a high rate of speed coming from the right and hitting the front end of that car. If I was standing on the southwest corner looking east, I would say the car came from dead ahead at a high speed of... at a high speed. (laughs) And it hit the far side of the car that was in the middle of the intersection turning west. So you get the point. The same event, four different perspectives. So here's John's account of the almost empty tomb of Jesus Christ. It's empty of the body of the Lord, but not empty of evidence. And it's only John that really focuses in on detail to the evidence that we read about this morning. So, if you look at your outline, notice, number one, the first thing we want to look at is the evidence of the almost empty tomb. The evidence of the almost empty tomb. We'll look at this as we just read through this narrative in verses 1 to 10. Notice verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark, and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Now, Mary Magdalene refers to Mary who came from the Galilean village of Magdala. It's located uh, north of Tiberias on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee. And if you were with us in Israel, we actually stayed there in Tiberias and we actually looked over where this village was. People still live there today. She was a devout follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus cast out seven seven demons from this woman. Now, she comes back early in the morning, first day of the week, to finish anointing the body of Jesus. And she came along with some other women, according to the Synoptic Gospels. As we read the other Gospel accounts, the other witnesses of this event, they describe that she came along with some other women. Now, perhaps Nicodemus and Joseph had run out of time. As you know, Sabbath was about to begin. Jesus is on the cross late Friday afternoon. The new day for the Jews begins in the evening. The Sabbath, therefore, would commence at evening. And Jesus would have to be off of that cross and into the grave before sundown. So the women at this point bring spices and they want to contribute to the burial of Jesus according to Mark chapter 16 verse 1. 
Now, as they approached the tomb, the wheel-shaped stone, this large wheel-shaped stone, had been rolled away. As they approached there, the synoptic gospel writers say that they were wondering who, who would roll away this great stone to allow us in to continue anointing the body of Jesus. They get there, it's already rolled away. So she came back to finish what Joseph and Nicodemus were not able to accomplish on Friday evening. They notice, she notices that the stone is rolled away and she panics. Why was the stone rolled away, beloved? Just in case you don't know, let me tell you something for sure. It was not to let Jesus out. Okay? He was out. It was to let his believing disciples in. Now, although John does not provide us the details here, it's not too hard for us to imagine that as Mary approached the tomb, saw the stone rolled aside, that she probably peered in and examined the tomb to witness the fact that the body was not there. So she flees to find the men. Verse 2. So she ran. And she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we, we, we do not know where they have laid him. So Mary hastens to find Peter and John. They're the leaders of the 12. Jesus had his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Peter was definitely the lead leader and John. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and notice to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. John never calls himself John. He always refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Here's a man who understood the love of Christ. So John was at this point caring for the mother of Jesus. As you know, from the cross, Jesus said, woman, behold your son. Now, it is grammatically possible here that Peter and John were lodging together in the same home. But it's probably more likely that they each were residing in different locations. Mary obviously knew where to find them and she ran and found them both exactly where they would be found. And then she gives this report. They've taken away the Lord. Now, she perhaps thought that the Jews had stolen the body for some further desecration of the Lord. So the reference to they and they have taken away the Lord likely refers to the temple authorities, the religious leaders of the day who hated Christ. (laughs) They hated him. Religion hates Jesus. They hate Jesus. People who have a higher power hate Jesus because their God has to fit in their mold and Jesus breaks the mold. He destroys molds. She could have perhaps thought that some grave robbers had taken him away. For some demented reason, grave robbery was common in the first century, so much so that Emperor Claudius, who reigned from 41 to 54 AD, ordered capital punishment to be administered to anyone who would destroy tombs, remove bodies, or even remove the ceiling stones away from the tomb entrance. So it's not, all surpri- it's not at all surprising here that the sight of the detached gravestone prompted Mary to say, they've taken the Lord. They've taken him away. In Mary's use here of the plural and we, we do not know where they have laid him, suggests that she wasn't alone. Now we know she wasn't alone in the tomb and it's very unlikely that she would run by herself from the tomb. She could have been accompanied by at least one other woman because it was very rare for a woman to venture outside of the city walls alone in the wee hours of the morning. Do you not teach your teenage daughters never to walk alone? <laughs> because you got a bunch of twisted perverts out there, amen? <laughs> Don't let her walk alone. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciples went forth and they were going to the tomb. So they went forth, meaning they went out from where they were. They started out, in other words, at once. They leave at once. 
Now, it seems as though they started out walking together here. Verse 3, Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. Verse 4, the two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there. But he did not go in. So at this point, they're both running. Side by side at first. And then John begins to outdistance Peter. Now, perhaps Peter being older and John being younger and more athletic, perhaps that was the reason why he outran him. Or maybe Peter having denied Christ that, that night after the upper room discourse and the Last Supper, perhaps he's hesitant. Who knows? Perhaps he's troubled. But whatever the reason is, it's mere speculation because the scriptures, they don't tell us. But it's fun to think about these things. So here now, John approaches the tomb. He arrives first. He approaches the tomb. This is a tomb that's carved out of a rock. So therefore, it had a low overhead entrance. So two actions were necessary. Number one, to enter in, you'd have to stoop down. And you'd have to stoop down and squat down to be able to look in. And that's exactly what he does. And as he looked in, notice, he noticed the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. He saw them lying there. Now, he's obviously alarmed at this point, but I doubt highly at this point he's thinking, resurrection, just like Jesus has been telling us. Now, as John is coming out, here comes Peter. Wheezing, perhaps, out of breath. And knowing Peter, we can only imagine that here's John standing at the entrance. He pulls, pushes John aside and, and rushes in and down into the tomb before John. And now he peers at the place where the Lord had been laid. John merely glanced in, noticed the linen wrappings. Peter goes in and he actually looks at them. He observes them. Verse 6, and so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings but rolled up in a place by itself. So without fear of the unknown, without the concern of becoming ceremonially unclean by coming in contact with the dead body, which would have been the case for any Jew, Peter does not care. He barges in. He sees the linen wrappings lying right there where he was laid. So what John from the outside looking in had merely noticed, Peter now once again makes an observation. So he naturally saw more clearly than John did. This was an unbelievable sight. Try to put yourself in their place. Try to remove yourself 2,000 years this side of the cross and go back to this tomb this morning. He gazes at this with wonder. The linens, he observes, are lying there in very orderly fashion. Neat as can be. So Peter sees that the body's disappeared. The linens, they're present, but they're undisturbed. There's not spices laying all over the place. As though some freak would come in and steal the body and unwrap it. Besides that, if they were going to steal the body, why would they take the time and unwrap it? And then the head dressing is separate from the body linens. And this is how the Jews prepared dead bodies. They would wrap each limb individually Arm, arm, leg, leg, the trunk, and then they would wrap the head, the face, individually. Remember when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb? John chapter 11. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And there he came. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to him, them, unbind him, and let him go. So he was able to walk out. 
He wasn't mummified. He wasn't wrapped up like a mummy and had to hop, you know, like the Egyptians would do, right? So here the wrappings were, clearly without the body, neatly laying there, undisturbed. Now, some scholars will say that it was still in like a cocoon-like form. There's nowhere they really get that from the text. It's a great idea. Perhaps it was. I don't know. But the, the headdressing was separate from the body dressings. And there they were. It was wrapped up, lying in its place. So again, if the body would have been stripped of the linens, there would have been spices and the gummy aloe laying all over the place. But it was neat. It was orderly, in place. So Peter's amazed. He doesn't have the clarity of the resurrection in his mind at this point. He simply observed what was there. This is very important. He's observing what's there. Now John, what at first he only recognized... (laughs) He now sees something more. Verse 8. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. Now some people, some commentators say, well, he saw that the body wasn't there and he believed Mary's report. No. No. He enters the tomb. We'll see why. It couldn't be that in a minute. Now, that which he only noticed at first, he now observes with his eyes and he's able to recognize the significance, this is important, the significance of these grave clothes. He now sees and he believes. So John at this point has penetrated the deeper meaning of the empty grave clothes. He perceives something he did not at first. He perceives something here that Peter has not yet perceived. The evidence. The evidence. Now, despite the fact that you know he doesn't yet grasp the larger biblical theological context or framework from which these things take place, He does, however, believe. Look at verse 9. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead, so the disciples went away again to their own homes. Now, all of this had been prophesied in the Old Testament. That's what he means by the scriptures. Isaiah 53, Psalm 16. Psalm 110, Psalm 118, all referred to the resurrection of the coming one, the resurrection of the Messiah. But all of those scriptures had meant very little to them at this point. But those living scriptures would go on to grip their hearts. And especially after Pentecost, they would preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ with authority. That's what the word does, amen? That's what the word ought to do to us. If we're born again of the spirit, we are in Christ, children of God, the word of God should continually move us into a deeper trust of the Savior, a deeper trust of the meaning of the word, and a life transformed by that truth. Besides that, though it was written, Jesus told them numerous times, that he would suffer, that he would die, that he would be raised the third day. He said as Jonah was resurrected from the belly of a fish after three days, so the Son of Man will be three days in the tomb to raise up again, as he said in Matthew chapter 12. So here is the evidence. Verses 1 through 10, here's the evidence. This is the almost empty tomb. Rolled away stone, undisturbed grave clothes. So what did this not-so-empty tomb provide for these men? Or at least for John at this point. What it provided was this. The ability to see. To see what? The meaning of these empty grave clothes. The meaning. The promise which he'll understand later. By way of the scriptures. And the meaning is that Christ is risen from the dead. Now that's obvious to us. Amen? 
That's obvious to us, this side of the cross. But again, you must place yourself where they are. Everything that they've been through with Christ, three years of following Christ, him having been arrested, him having said, I'm going to be delivered to the hands of man, crucified and raised the third day, and not getting it. So we move now from the evidence, point one, to point number two. Our second point of focus, the progression the progression of spiritual sight in the almost empty tomb. We see this in verse 5, 6, and 8. Now, when John wrote this account, he used different Greek words for seeing. In verse 5, John, notice it says, saw the linen wrappings. The verb is blepo, which simply means this. It means to glance in or look in. This means that John notices them, but he does not focus upon them. He does not inspect them. In verse 6, the word saw in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, is the word theoreo, from where we get our English word theorize. Implying that he scrutinizes these grave clothes. He inspects them. He looks at them much more clearly than John did. And then in verse 8, there's a different word. He saw and he believed. Now, this is a much more intense word, horao, which depicts intellectual activity. It means to perceive with intelligent comprehension. It means to have an in-depth heart contemplation. So John now begins to perceive He begins to perceive the truth and the reality of Christ. And now he begins to embrace the perception wholeheartedly. What he's perceiving, what he's inspected, what he recognizes, get this, don't miss this, he now embraces what he recognizes. Which is key to belief. Question. Have you been graced by God Please, wake up if you're sleeping. Have you been graced by God to perceive the truth of Jesus Christ and now embrace that perception of Jesus Christ? Have you? In other words, has the truth of Jesus Christ transformed your world, your life, and your person? That's the question. We mustn't leave here without having these answers, these questions answered for us in your own heart this morning. Because I care for your soul. Now, we see a progression here in John 20. Resurrection faith was dawning in their minds and in their hearts. At first, John looks in, yet he doesn't see all that there is to be seen. I mean, how many people are there who peer into the truth of Christ... Remember the first look at John. He just looked in here. Yep, there's grave clothes there. People peer into the truth of Christ and they are no way moved. They glance. They no way want to inspect. They do not want to focus on the truth that's being conveyed. They'll attend church, yet they can't see. They can't see past the observances or the worship of Christ's own people. They'll sit right in the midst of you. They'll observe you sing. They'll observe you worshiping God. They'll observe you partaking of the cup and the bread. But that's it. Peter, on the other hand, he inspects. He analyzes the grave clothes. Luke 24, 12 tells us that he left, after he did that, he left for home, marveling at what had happened. Peter left amazed, but still was, did not have clarity of the evidence of Christ's resurrection. There's many people who experience this very th- same thing today. This very kind of thing goes on in churches weekly. <laughs> they truly believe the facts. They've observed the evidence. 
Yes, Jesus is Messiah. Yes, Jesus is Savior. Yes, Jesus is the Lord of glory. Yeah, He is the only way. Yet, as amazed as they might feel momentarily, their minds and their hearts are clouded. Dark. They remain in unbelief. They're not able to embrace here the full implications in reality of the resurrected Christ. They don't have a saving relationship with Him. They can't understand it because they're stuck in a love for the world. They don't love Christ. They love the world. They believe, 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 believe the facts about Him. This is how you get out of stuttering. If you're stumbling over a word, you make it look like you meant it. They believe intellectually. They've theorized this truth. Yet they haven't perceived with believing eyes yet. But one day, they will stand before the Lord of glory in judgment. And they'll say, I believed intellectually. I observed the facts. I agree that you are Lord. I agreed that you are the only way, only to be cast away for eternity. How would you stand today? If today were the day, he returns like this. You stand naked before him. Nothing hidden. How will you stand? Will you be one who intellectually sees Christ as who he is, but with an unbelieving heart? A heart that hasn't been transformed by the Holy Spirit. You've never been born again. You've never repented of this world and a love for the world. Jesus said you must be born again. You can believe the facts and not be born again. It takes the miracle of God the Holy Spirit to transform a heart like that. All you can do is cry for mercy to God. It's only when the truth of the gospel penetrates our soul by the spirit of God through the preaching of the word of God that the light of Christ will take hold and move a sinner to perceive and to believe. To embrace the perception of the truth. You know, this type of perception, beloved, does this type of perception ever end as a Christian? It never ends, does it? The more we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, we, we see more, we perceive more. And as we grow in the intricacies of his resurrection, we learn of the sovereignty of God more and more every day. We learn of the providence of God more and more every day. That everything points to the cross historically. From the creation of man to the final consummation of man, everything points forward to or back to the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you think you have it figured out, as the Bible says, you are a fool in your folly. And you don't know what you don't know. We never arrive. We never perceive completely this knowledge and all that happened here in Calvary. We'll never perceive completely what happened in the tomb. But as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ as Christians who walk by the Spirit of God, He reveals to us deeper truths about Himself and we embrace these truths and we grow down in humility. Amen? Because we we become more deeply convinced as we see and believe while the Spirit does His mighty work through His Word. This is why men must preach the Word of God from their pulpits. They must. So there, point two, we witness the progression of spiritual sight and hear the almost empty tomb. Isn't it great that it was almost empty? Now, We look at these grave clothes and we say, great. The whole idea of this perception of belief and embracing this belief, that's great. But how do these grave clothes apply to us today who sit here in Southern California in Pacific Hope Church on October 11th, 2009? Well, these empty grave clothes foretell something for us. 
They foreshadow certain things for us. So these grave clothes foretell, these grave clothes foreshadow, beloved, our future glorification. Our future glorification. What is your hope in this morning? Is it in your car? Your house? Your hobby? Your spouse? Your children? Or is it in Christ and our future glorification? To be with Him forever. That moves us to our last point. The foretelling promises of the almost empty tomb. This is for all true believers. These promises are for you this very day if you are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, listen very carefully to what you don't have at this point. For I pray and I hope that by the time you walk out, the Spirit of God will move in such a way that will convict you, convert you, transform you to become a living sinner saved by grace. To share in what we have in Christ. So, one of the foretelling truths of his grave clothes is that they assure us of our future resurrection. Just as they provide, provided assurance of his resurrection in this grave this very morning, they also foretell for us the assured resurrection that awaits us. And this, my friends, is a literal, physical, bodily resurrection. Not some mere spiritualized resurrection as a lot of these crazy heretics teach today. As the Lord left behind his grave clothes so too will we. Guaranteed. And I guarantee it. This is his victory over sin. This is his glorious resurrection. And his victory over sin and his glorious resurrection is a pledge of what we one day in Christ will receive. Do you believe it this morning, beloved? A body fit for eternal joy. That's the dominant feature in heaven. Joy. Perfected joy. Undiminished joy. Ever increasing joy. Never ending joy. With our Lord. Unimaginable joy. Nothing compares. Nothing can compare. We'll be raised in the likeness of Jesus Christ, obtaining a body like His resurrected body. Imagine, beloved, no more temptations. Can you imagine that? You hate fighting against temptation. I hate it. No more short tempers. Amen? No more lack of self-control. but rather every particle of sin clothing left behind. Assured of it by way of his physical, literal resurrection. That's number one. Number two, these grave clothes, this almost empty tomb, foretells for us, foreshadows for us, our eternal justification. In other words, our full redemption. Our full and complete justification. Because those empty grave clothes lying there that morning declared that God's divine justice demanded the release of the Son of God. He had to raise. He upheld the law perfectly and laid down his life effectively. The grave couldn't hold him. The grave clothes couldn't hold him. Death itself could not hold the Lord of glory. Romans 4.25 He who was delivered over because of our transgressions was raised because of our justification. Pastors don't even preach about doctrine anymore. Christians don't even know what the word justification means anymore. How sad. It's not a wonder they're trying to work their way into heaven and doing something for Jesus. Amen? See, at present, beloved, if you're in Christ, you are justified positionally. You are justified spiritually. 
But one day, one day in the resurrection, we will wear physically our justification. Resurrection form. Resurrection form. Look, you are justified, which means you're declared free from all blame. As I opened this morning, not only are you forgiven of your sins in Christ, but the righteousness of Christ himself has been imputed to you, been placed upon you. You're cloaked in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ, spiritually speaking. One day you'll be fully justified. This body that's going in the grave will be raised up again. Different but kind of the same. Which we'll see. And then once again, as I said, we will wear the clothing of justification in the fullest sense. A resurrected body. Number three, his grave clothes foretell, his grave clothes foreshadow how we'll be raised from the dead. How? And it will be instantaneously, deliberate, an instant and deliberate transformation. Now, the text implies that Jesus did not slowly unwrap this clothing, this linen, amen? And then walk out of the tomb. He raised up out of it. This was instantaneous. Rising rising out of the grave clothes and rising out of the grave. And just as the Lord Jesus Christ was deliberate in his suffering and was deliberate in his death, he was also deliberate in the instantaneous power of his resurrection on the third day, just as he said. Just as your soul will be instantly purified. For, let me back up. When you were born again, Okay? When you became a believer, at that moment, your soul was purified positionally. Right? You know that your soul is not practically righteous right at this moment. Amen? Positionally you are, because God looks at you and he sees Christ. But just as your soul will be instantly purified, practically and perfectly, upon your death so will one day your body to enter into the presence of the Lord. If you die on the way out this afternoon, you're in Christ, you will be immediately with the Lord in spirit, with a perfect, purified soul to enter into the presence of Jesus. But there's coming a day when that body will be raised up in newness, but yet in likeness, fit for heaven, perfect, instantly changed. Now, those who've died before us, they at this point, at this moment, they live outside of time. They dwell with the Lord outside of time. It's beyond our comprehension. If you can explain to me what it's like outside of time and space, I'd love to hear that. I have no idea what that's like, but that's what it's like with those who are in the presence of the Lord. If Christ comes back this afternoon, we who remain in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we will be transformed, body and soul. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who died. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. They're with the Lord, but their bodies will be raised to be reunited with their spirit in perfected form. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, beloved, beloved, comfort one another with these words. Comfort. These guys who say that Jesus returned in 70 AD, they don't have this hope. What do they hope in? This dismal world that's subject to decay? Come on, somebody. Unbelievable. Unfortunate. Fourthly, his grave clothes foretell 
for us. His grave clothes foreshadow for us the type of body that we will be resurrected with. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children. Children of God. And it has not appeared what we yet will be. But we know that when he appears, we will be what? Like him. Philippians 3.21, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Now, 1 Corinthians 15.44, we read from this morning, says this body is sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. Okay, now don't be confused with that. Spiritual does not mean immaterial. Some people teach, well, that's merely an um, an immaterial spiritual body. All that simply means is that it's a resurrected body in which the Spirit dwells. Jesus didn't raise spiritually from the tomb. He burst forth physically. He raised up out of it. They saw him. They touched him. They hugged him. Mary hugged him. Thomas put his hand into his side, into his wrists, and he fell down at his feet and said, my Lord and my God. He raised up physically. So our Lord's conquest over death indicates the very nature of our resurrection. We must understand this. Our Lord was not a resuscitated corpse. Our bodies will not will not be reconstituted out of the identical material for which they are buried in, in which which they're presently composed of at this moment. In other words, we won't be restored to our former condition. We have to have bodies fit for heaven. Now, Jesus raised, as we know, three people from the dead that's recorded. He, He raised the son of the widow of Nain. Jairus' daughter, and Lazarus. But when he raised them up, he brought them back just as they were when? Before they died. The resurrection of Jesus was unlike the resurrection of those three. It was different. They all went on to die again. Right? They were raised, but they would die again. Jesus' resurrection was not some type of resuscitation. He was raised to an altogether new plane of existence, a body that would never and could never die again. Revelation 1.18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Forevermore. So our hope in the resurrection is not merely the survival or the resurrection of the soul for eternity. It's not merely a spiritual resurrection as some of these heretics teach today. Jesus again, he said, see my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and what? Flesh and bones. Interesting, he didn't say flesh and blood. Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, but he did say flesh and bone. Whatever that means. So Jesus was neither a revived corpse or an immaterial ghost. Instead, he was raised from death and simultaneously transformed. And our resurrection bodies will be like his beloved. Certain features will remain recognizable just like the Lord's, whereas other aspects of it will in no way be like our earthly bodies. For instance, Jesus bore the scars on his side, on his hands, and on his feet. When he spoke, Mary didn't recognize his appearance at first, as we'll see next week. But what did she recognize? His voice. His voice. But on the other hand, his body passed through a sealed tomb, passed through locked doors, and passed through these grave clothes, which are the first evidence of his resurrection. And we too will have resurrected bodies not unlike our Lord's. Now Paul illustrated this glorious combination of continuity and discontinuity of the resurrected body. Some elements that will remain the same and others that are completely different. The continuity will be the recognizable part of the body. I think will be recognizable in heaven. 
And it's that part in which these mortal bodies are characteristics that we have now. That's the continuity of it. Along with the discontinuity of this, or new aspects of this new body. Things that we're not able to have now. This body can't go into heaven. This body must go to the grave. That's why it has to be resurrected. Certain aspects of it will remain the same, and God will make some things new so that it's fit for heaven. And then Paul illustrates this combination from the relationship of seeds to plant life. Okay, look at 1 Corinthians 15. We read from this morning. Right there in verse uh, 35. Someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. That which you sow, you do not sow the body. That which you sow, you do not sow the body, which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. So, in its continuity, there is assurance that each seed will produce its own flower. In its discontinuity, we're able to see that out of an ugly little teeny seed will spring forth an elegant flowering plant. Farmer plants the seed, and then that seed begins to draw, draw, draw in particles of soil, water, and air. And then from that seed, there is birthed a full, flourishing life. Look at 1 Corinthians again, verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Again, our resurrection bodies will be like His, sharing the combination of continuity and discontinuity. Those things that are recognizable and that we had here on earth, and those things that will only be fit for heaven. So, just as the seed is not the only particle being used in the form to form the plant, so too not all the particles of our earthly bodies need to be used in forming us as being fit for heaven. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that beautiful? But it is the identity of the seed. It's the identity of the seed that passes into the life of the plant. And then from out of that dingy plant springs life. The same would be true with this. Whether you were blown apart in war and your body was never found, it doesn't matter. You don't think God created man out of nothing. You don't think he can reclaim everything that's been lost? Amen? Amen. Those kind of arguments are really ridiculous, by the way, these people come up with. So the seed is the foundation and the seed is the origin. So too is our bodies that we have now. The seed, it is the origin, it is the foundation that will be our resurrection. By the supernatural work of God. Fifthly and lastly, his grave clothes foretell the empty tomb, the almost empty tomb foreshadows that the grave and death itself have no dominion over those who are in Christ. You will not experience death. You will simply pass from this body into the presence of God. No in-between dark, cold chasm. If you're in Christ. So we who are in Christ will be fully redeemed. The body of Christ, all of us individually, one day raised up individually, gathered together as one body with the head. Our groom, his bride, Jesus Christ. His church with their Redeemer. Fully redeemed, spiritually regenerated, and physically raised with a body like our Savior in a resurrected universe. That's our future hope, beloved. Hallelujah is right. Amen is right. So just as his grave clothes were left behind, so will yours be left behind. That fallen sinful flesh that we battle against every day. We have the ability not to fall prey to it, 
But one day, there will literally be no more sin. No more sickness. No more selfish pride. Will that not be a great one to be? Thank you. Speak for myself. But I'm glad that you can identify with that. No more having to fight against sin. No more having to wrestle against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's not a physical battle. That's a spiritual battle. But you won't feel it in your physical being. No more having to say, evil is yet present with me. You are justified, which means you're declared free from the penalty of sin. You're sanctified, which means you're free from the power of sin right here, right now. However, our glorification is the day that we will be separated from the presence of sin. That's our hope. That's what we look forward to. Our whole person, our entire being will be raised incorruptible, full of beauty, full of glory. Now, as I close, I ask the question, have you perceived this truth and embraced the perception of this truth? Perhaps you haven't perceived the truth of Christ yet. Perhaps you don't see clearly. You've only glanced at the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've glanced at his death. You've glanced at his glorious resurrection. Perhaps you're the next step. You theorized over these truths. You understand them to be true. You agree that they are true but you haven't perceived and embraced the perception. Therefore, you don't truly believe. You only believe with intellectual assent. If you die like that, you will also one day receive a body. That body will be indestructible. It will be a resurrected body, but it will not be like Christ's resurrected body. You will be cast away from God within, in that body and you will cry out for the mountains to fall on you. You will cry out that God would annihilate you, but there'll be no annihilation because that body was resurrected to be fit to receive the justice of God for eternity, his wrath. A body designed to forever suffer the torments of hell. That's the resurrection of the wicked. That's the resurrection of Christ rejectors. He stands here offering you salvation. He stands here offering you eternal life. He stands here to say, this bad news has been conquered. It's been defeated. I came. I lived the law to perfection for the glory of my Father, and I passively laid down my life. I defeated death. I rose up again. You must believe in me. You must repent of your sin. You must embrace the perception of me by embracing me, and you too shall be saved. So if that's you, come to Christ. Die of your pride. Stop messing around by theorizing over Christ. Stop messing around by sitting amongst God's people and just observing what they're doing and come to the throne. Come to the cross. Come to the Lamb. Because He's the only one that can save you. No man's going to save you. No subjective higher power is going to save you. Buddha's not going to save you. Confucius is not going to save you. Muhammad's not going to save you. Only Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God, can save you. He said this, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is eternal rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is he who said, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. We praise you for the glorious cross, victory of the grave clothes, victory of the grave, victory of the death that couldn't hold our Savior. Thank you. Thank you for the church. Thank you for your people, saved by grace, joined together here this morning. Lord, may we know and may we remember that we are not the main attraction 
from the original creation to the new creation. You are. You're the one to be focused upon. And I pray that that would be our desire. I pray, Lord, that this hope of the resurrection, of the future resurrection, will grip our hearts, that we will perceive this. And, Lord, I pray that when we begin to doubt God as we live here and still our fallen flesh, when we begin to doubt your word, that we will examine and re-examine the almost empty tomb. That we will examine the grave clothes of our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. And Lord, for anyone here this morning who is one who theorizes over these things, one who merely glances now and again at these truths, I pray and I ask that you will not give them rest. I pray that you will torment their soul that will bring them to a place of broken repentance. I pray that everything that they do will fail if they're resisting you and running from you and refusing to repent before you. Grant them the grace that will enable them to see that all that they chase after is empty and it is vain and the only hope that they have is in you and that you would grant them repentance, grant them the ability to believe, fall upon them Holy Spirit, anoint them with the Holy Spirit, causing them to be baptized in the Spirit, born again of the Spirit for your glory and their good. In Jesus' name, amen.